Mist Cues is recorded on the traditional and unceded territory of the Katsi, Kwantlen, Lumi, Suwasan, and Wasanich peoples, and also in the Treaty 7 territory, the traditional land of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Tanaha, Miti, and Sutina peoples. Hey everybody, thanks for joining us. This is part one of two of our conversation with Alyssa McKinnon and Alan Martell of Pivot. Uh, we recorded this episode on May 18, 2021. I really love uh, this, this chat that we had with them and I hope you do as well. Enjoy! Welcome to Miscues, the podcast where we talk about theater while we have some drinks. My name is Thomas Gage. My name is Kate Stadel. And today we are absolutely thrilled to be joined with uh, Alyssa McKinnon. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And we're here with Alain Martel as well. How's it going? And both of them are with Pivot, which is an arts uh, consulting company based in Calgary. Is that right? Yeah. So thank you for joining us. We're super excited to have you on the show. Uh, before we get into all that stuff, we're going to play a quick little game. Did I tell you about it? Did I put that in the outline? Uh, you told us it was happening, but... Okay, great. <laughs> I may not have paid attention. (laughs) We we like to get you out of your comfort zone within the first minute and a half of this podcast. (laughs) I I don't have a limit on my comfort zone. There you go. Well, that's good to know. (laughs) Love it. I love. I miss arts people so much. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, we played this once on the pod uh, on the podcast actually before with Patty. We had Patty Pond uh, on and. we play this. Um, it's it's it, I got it from TikTok, and basically you go to your phone in your in your iMessages. You go to your emojis and the 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 um, what's it called like the recent emojis that you used, and you pick your five most recent emojis that went going down, and then uh, you talk about you describe them and you say if it's uh, at all relevant to how you're feeling. So for example, mine are like i'm gonna skip the first row because I, I i do a lot of social media posts and i i cheat so i've got a lot of points and okays and tools uh but my second row of ones is a light bulb it's the thinking face it's the brain it's the ha lol the not the not, not the millennial lol with the tears but the Z- gen z lol <laughs> without the tears Right? Oh my god, I didn't know there was a difference. <laughs> yeah, there's a difference. You better be using the right one or you're not cool. Oh no, I don't even know <laughs> what generation I'm in. <laughs> so those are mine. Those are actually actually probably a part of my social media stuff as well, but, but that's fine. We'll go with them. It, it's pretty brainy, thinky, laughy idea. I, I don't feel like that at all these days. Uh, so, <laughs> Alyssa, what do you have? Um, so I think I have the wrong little face because mine have tears. Oh no! So I just really dated myself there. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> the next one is the party emoji with the woo and the little. Just the thing. Yeah, okay. Is it oh, the okay. face with the thing? The face with the thing. Okay. Yeah. Oh great! That's a good one. An eye roll. Ooh, and yeah. The face that they're like making like. Yeah, like grimace. That. Yes. <laughs> and then and then a face palm with the girl with the like, the dark hair. Um, good. Good. Yeah, I think that's pretty much what my week's been. <laughs> I, do you think it's weird that I like I receive that facepalm one a lot? 
I don't use it, but I receive it often. I don't know if that says bad things like about in me. In response to you, it's like you Probably, say something, yeah. and they go, "Oh no!" Yeah, they all I, I think I'm like ridiculous. I think that's <laughs> when I normally have sent to like my family group text after my toddler's done something. Oh yeah, and it's like they just decided to wear jeans to bed and wouldn't go to bed until they put jeans on. <laughs> Tonight. That's what the fight was. Hilarious. Oh my god. Oh, that's funny. Alan, right. Alain, what do you got? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I have three variations on the devil face. Oh, I didn't so, know. Oh. Two of the purple ones, the uh the mischievous one that is uh smiling and then the one that is mischievously frowning. Yeah. Then there then there's the uh the red one that has the the fanged teeth and <laughs> Y'all who are listening to the podcast can't see it, but I made the face exactly. It was exact. It was. It was the emoji. Alain legit looked like an emoji there. <laughs> uh, just everybody knows I've always wanted to be a meme, and and you can't try to be a meme, but if you find it in your hearts that you can meme me, please do. <laughs> Challenge. That's the only reason why I'm here. <laughs> Tom will make like... it happen. Yeah. <laughs> then I have the vomit emoji. Because I Ooh. tend to send that to my best friend a lot every time he shares. Right? Actually, uh, whether it's mean or not, anytime somebody sends a positive message to me, like, oh, I just did this. <laughs> or, hope you have a good day. I just send the vomit uh, emoji. <laughs> I can confirm this also. <laughs> I, uh, I, I do not thrive on your, your over positivity, my friends. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. It's COVID times. That's fair. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and, then the tomb- and then the tombstone, because uh, one of my best friends is seven years younger than me, and she keeps me up to date on the jargon y'all use nowadays. And so I use uh, rip a lot. Ooh. So whenever I don't even know what... Oh, God, I feel rest- so Is that old. the new lit? Is, that, is rip the new no, lit? It, rip oh, is rest shit. in peace. It's old. Oh. Like, oh, but no, how- I just went but- on the worst date ever. Oh, rip. Oh. oh. Y'all, how old are y'all? Oh, young. I'm one of those like Gen Xers that's not a millennial that has like 75 different terms for them. So I don't know. Like I'm, I, there was a meme today actually about it, like where it was like, if you were born between like 1980 and 1985 and they gave like 17 different like categories that you're in. So I'm one of them. I'm the, <laughs> I'm the kind of millennial who had to be taught that the tear, the emoji tears is not cool and desperately took that out of my vocabulary because I, <laughs> I, I, I understand because I used to be I used to be the I think I'm a millennial y'all tell me yeah. born 1990 we're millennials. Uh, I used to use XD a lot okay no that that belongs to a, a subgenre of XD rar people apparently I so never rar. never type out your emojis use the actual emoji yeah so I I just anybody recently... listening I'm I just heard recently too, like there's a whole like millennials versus Gen Z thing, I think, about yeah. like where you part your hair yeah. and what kind of jeans you wear. And that really stressed me out because I dug in my heels about what jeans I wear and where I part my hair. And that well, made not. me feel super old. <laughs> Here, here's the secret. No hair. No yeah. yeah. Shave your head. No jeans. Good call. I'm bald. Everybody is listening. <laughs> That's a good tip. Good tip. 
just take yourself out of the situation. Um, okay, I have the one where the eyes are up in their head. I the think that's roll. just uh, like, yeah. And then I have this. I use this a lot. The rock and roll. Uh, yeah, the, I prefer this. I, I really think that the thumbs up Devils? seems sarcastic to me. So no, it's this way. <laughs> the thumbs on this side. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the thumbs up feels very sarcastic to me. And I always think people are making fun of me when they use it. So I changed it to this. Um, and then I have the red heart. And then I have that grimace face with the teeth bearing. Uh, and then I have that one where the person's like, got like those eyebrows that look like, this and they look really sad, but they're not crying. <laughs> like, ah. No, it's more like ah. <laughs> Is it the tired one? Yeah, I guess so. Or just like Jesus Christ. Every every time there's some sort of AHS announcement, it's used quite often. So I think that's uh-huh. these ones are far more negative than probably last week's ones. But is it like this? Yeah, that one. Yeah. Yeah. You have like the <laughs> X's. X eyes? No, they're or, sad, okay. like half moon eyes. <laughs> I don't know how to explain these things. Perfectly. Um, perfectly. But yeah, that's, well, we have very little in common in our emoji worlds, it seems. Alyssa and I both Thank use the much. grimace face, so I feel like that's good. Yeah. We're, we're BFFs now, so that's yeah. great. I'm going to start using all of LNs. LNs yeah. is the new vocabulary. I, uh, I, I teach very serious subjects, but I'm not a very serious person. <laughs> so uh pivot mm-hmm. tell me about it this is amazing i am new to hearing about this and that makes me feel bad but i think also uh i'm pumped so why don't you guys give me like your overview of this company and what you're up to and tom and i have a billion questions for you awesome well um don't feel bad because we are pretty new. Um, okay. We okay. In 2019. Um, we've been, uh, Alan and I went to uh, the University of Calgary together. We both did our dance degree there, and that's how we met. And while we were there, the undergrad society was called Pivot. Um, and so it was kind of this running joke that happened by the time we were in our fourth year. Um, him and I were. Uh, doing kind of a lot of extra stuff. And there was kind of this running joke that like when things would happen, Pivot would do it. And so when we were in our undergrad, we kind of had this like conversation that was like, ah, maybe one day we'll do something arts admin. We both really liked that side of art. Uh, and then we were like, eh, we'll go to grad school instead. One of our separate <laughs> ways. Um, Ellen went to Ireland and did his MA there. I went to Toronto and did my MBA and my MA at York. Um, And then we both kind of ended up back in Calgary. And in the summer of 2019, we're like, yeah, this seems like a great time. Let's just jump in, we'll get this started. And we realized that artists have to wear so many hats that in any other industry are full departments, realistically, that there just needed to be the support for artists by former artists and that so you didn't have to explain why you were making an artistic decision and that you didn't have to feel pressured to change your artistic intention for like a business outcome if you will Mm -hmm. so we both really liked um that's fabulous i think um and have that's definitely a hole that was needed to be filled in the arts industry um so like 
just for some context, like I, I've been working in arts admin almost my whole theater career, and it's I, I feel very passionate about it. But people who feel passionate about arts admin are few and far between, or they sort of end up in that world because, you know, you start as a director and then you end up producing and then you end up, you know, working at a box office in your early 20s and then you end up, you know, group sales or whatever you're going, whatever path you end up down. But a lot of folks we see, especially if you're just starting out, like say doing a fringe show or whatever, you're all of a sudden like doing everything. And then the art loses its art because you're straight up doing all the business beside it. Um, So that support is really, really uh, wonderful. And I think that's a really fabulous model that you guys have just um, sort of come across. I'm curious, like how has that been the uptake on this for you guys? Um, like I would actually say shocking, uh, especially with COVID. Um, I think, uh, I, like we are in Calgary, so we do have a pretty vast network here, but we have done a, um, a project out in Vancouver. Um, and I, I think it's kind of, it's starting to build, especially right now, the, like I would have predicted that COVID would have kind of tanked a lot of, hmm. um, projects that we were working on and we did in the beginning we had some stuff finish that finished early because of you know shows were canceled uh but what it's an interesting time right now because you can kind of um because shows are paused in a way there's a chance to kind of regroup with what you're doing and so we're getting a lot of like grant writing and researching grants and trying to structure what your organization looks like. That seems to kind of be the biggest one. And then Alan has been doing the a, like a production coordinator kind of role, which he can obviously speak a lot more eloquently about uh, than I can. <laughs> um, where projects that are still moving forward, trying to navigate that in the ever-changing restriction landscape. Mm. I, uh, so just to, to touch on that, the production coordinator side, and maybe for those of you listening, just show you that, uh, working up the ladder is a real thing that has happened to, to many folks, uh, including myself. So, uh, within the arts administrative world and landscape and within the production and event coordination side, I started as an usher, holding the door, ripping tickets, showing you your seat. You could uh, sit down and watch uh, an enjoyable show at the Jack Singer Concert Hall. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I took on various roles. I um, uh, Just a bit of a personal side for me. I grew up with a big mediocrity complex and because mm. I didn't do anything as a kid. And uh, I mentioned to, to Kate and Thomas that I actually started dancing in university. And so my first foray really into the arts was really grade 12 when I did musical theater class. And then going to university when I did dance, and so I was kind of kind of late coming into into the arts. So I really had no idea or understanding really of anything about the arts, whether the presentation or the production or um, back of house or front of house kind of management. And so uh, growing up this mediocrity complex, I was really keen to just like do give not just one hundred and ten percent, but like one hundred fifty percent, overworking myself to to really prove to myself that I was uh, worthy and valuable. Fortunately, uh, that kind of burnout that I would. Uh, uh, periodically experienced did have some positive benefits, though I would. Anyone listening caution you against overworking yourself for the profit of another uh, individual or organization. However, it did in in my anecdotal sense or in my particular uh, situation work out for me. And so I slowly rose from being an usher to a head usher to an assistant house manager 
And then when I came back to Calgary after finishing my master's uh, in Ireland, I uh, became an event coordinator at, at, at the same place, at what is now Arts Commons, what was then known as Epcor Center for the Performing Arts. And I left that role because I was going to eventually do my doctorate and then uh, applied to a role to be an event coordinator at Mount Royal University, working with the Taylor Center for the Performing Arts. Uh, eventually became a manager, uh, operations manager of the Taylor Center for the Performing Arts. And then simultaneously to all of this as well, I was also uh, consulting with organizations like uh, Decidedly Jazz Dance Works on their operational design for their uh, new building that they had opened in Calgary in 2016. And uh, also worked with Calgary Opera on a project where they were building, uh, they were looking to construct their own building. So working with project architects and uh, interior designers on designing the op or thinking about operational design when, when building a performance venue. And then as Alyssa mentioned, working with a group in Vancouver where it provided a kind of a considerations report, which was like 74 pages long, about <laughs> what to consider when uh, looking for a venue. Hmm. And uh, a lot of this stuff in tandem with me learning uh, the venue side of things resulted in learning about production side of things. So actually running events uh, from the perspective of a lighting technician, of an audio technician, of a stage manager. Um, so it kind of became a, a jack of all trades in that sense. And it really helped inform me for my role in Pivot um, in regards to when, we're, when we support organizations who are looking for administrative assistance, that administration is more than just pushing papers or typing numbers into an Excel spreadsheet, but it does also include elements like production and production schedules. Uh, it does include things like how do we uh, manage, maintain, acquire, and who's going to utilize equipment, uh, and then also working with uh, venues and, and whatnot to uh, to help support the production uh, side of things. So recently I uh, just did an outdoor production because uh, we're in COVID times and was supporting everything administratively from uh, marketing to uh, website to, uh, I actually was the audio technician for the show for outdoors. So running uh, uh, a remote console with four speakers and uh, using a digital console run off of an iPad and having to live mix uh, a show. So, uh, and, and I kind of preface this story of myself that uh, sometimes I feel that uh, two, two things, one thing that people view administration as this like fantasy land where it's like, how do people do that? <laughs> and and uh, I, I, I think that you need to approach it from the position of learning by doing. And that's how a lot of people do learn administration is that especially artists, you're kind of thrust into that role. And you learn to become good at certain administrative uh, tasks because you're required to. So that is very much uh, a thing, though we are here to try and alleviate that. <laughs> As professionals, I can step in when you do not have the time, uh, um, for example. The other uh, thing I do want to note is that there's, there is something exciting. I know people like uh, uh, look down at, oh, I have to do administration or mm -hmm. uh, things like that. But there is something exciting about knowing about something about your per production or um, performance or, or whatever administrative work that you need to have done that um, there is uh, uh, such, I don't know. So, so I don't know where I'm going with this, but I, I find administrative <laughs> detail delicious. Yeah. is the best way that I can put it. And as well guys, as the, the production side of things. Y'all are my people. This is all yeah. I talk about 24-7. It's yeah. my nerd fest. Every book behind me is about arts admin. Like, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So it's 
Um, I'm like so pumped right now. So, (laughs) um, but I'm curious though, because this is sort of like, um, I would almost call it like an executive director or a producer for hire type situation, which is obviously different than a traditional model of like having the like people in the company and the staff in the company, et cetera, et cetera. So have you found this model to work for you? And like, I'm curious, I, you know, the uptake has been good, which has been awesome. I'm really excited to hear that. Um, How are you finding like that sort of like explanation or like, or proposing that need to folks who sometimes don't even know that they need these things until it's, you're down the rabbit hole of producing a show and you know, you're losing your mind because you're investing your own money and all your time is being taken up just trying to figure out a freaking box office system, or you don't know how to hire a tech or you don't know how to book a venue. And then that venue becomes a nightmare, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I- I'm curious, <laughs> I'm curious how you, how you're selling yourself this way and how is that working out? And, and what I'm, and also I'm just going to add in what I'm really pumped about this model is that it's really upping the game of the importance of this, this side of production and this side of arts. I think that that's really, really cool. Um, I asked 400 questions there in that one statement. Um, (laughs) Well, so I think like we are very new as a company. And so like a lot of times we get asked what we do and, or like what we could do for a certain group or whatever. And it's like, well, it depends. Like, we're kind of right now as we're growing and figuring ourselves out, we don't necessarily have these like refined like packages of like, you can pick A, B or C. And that's like the Mm. beginning and the end, which I think is really beneficial to artists in the sense that like, you might not actually know what you need. Um, And then we can kind of shift and be that as it comes. Pivot almost. Yeah. (laughs) Alan rolled his eyes. (laughs) Um, I I think also too, like we've been we've been brought in at various stages of projects. So we've also kind of figured out what that means, uh, Mm. and and what um, like what works well, what doesn't work well, like when people sometimes need like realize they might need support it might be you know too far gone in the project if you will for like this support that they think they need but it's actually like right. oh over here this other thing we can do for you is what we're what we can provide that might help um and i think to your point about like upping the game of arts like that's something that's so important to both of us like the the arts community as a whole um like the canadian arts landscape like it's so important i think for many reasons and seeing that able to continue and that artists don't have to struggle for five years and then stop their collective because they can't make it happen anymore like kind of trying to eliminate that i guess in Mm. the most like perfect world and uh, to, to add to that, one of the other things to, to consider is, especially when you are an individual who's creating art, who's used to taking on multiple roles, which I have done and um, in, in a way continue to do so, but I have the capacity to right now because I, I uh, have worked in many different roles at a professional level, but not to say that I wouldn't hire if, uh, you know, to hire, for example, uh, I'm working on a project and it's like, we'll probably hire Pivot. 
<laughs> they, uh, not me though. We'll hire Alyssa to, to, do, to do the work. Uh, but one thing to consider is that, you know, if you're an individual who's used to doing everything, which includes the administrative side. So, you know, whether it is considering the marketing or the grant writing or working with venues or the production, creating production schedule, working with production, working with whoever, giving it over to some other individual to to work on and organizations understand this because they have whole departments dedicated to it is that it's not just time saved but there's an exponential time saved so it's not just that oh i spent three hours a week doing administration and then five hours a week doing art you know just as a as a as a an example it is that uh because you think about you know our mental faculties and how um if divided our attention can become and how that can wear down on our ability to give full attention or uh, to, to really approach our art, the quality that we want to, to give over some of these tasks to other people. One um, brings in uh, alternate expertise is one thing to consider, but then also leaves you um, not just with that time saved, but also yeah. your, your um, mental, emotional uh, capacities and your artistic capacities to, to <clears throat> work at a greater percentage than if you were doing, doing everything. And I've seen this not just in, in, from the perspective of the individuals that we have worked with as, a, as an organization, but seeing this from also when I was managing and running a venue, how, you know, especially when we were in Ascent, I, I started just after the Taylor Center for Performing Arts opened, the Bella Concert Hall, and how we had to do a lot of, even though we were part of a university and part of a large team, how we had to do a lot of things on our own uh, initially and how much energy it took away uh, from administrators doing administration, their core administrative duties, how taking on other administrative duties took away from the quality that we could present uh, in our core duties. And once we could build a team around it, how much better we became at what we could do, how much more innovative we became at what we could do, and how much more we could up the game for uh, our clients and things like that. So when I think about the perspective of you know the whys, I know that there's always a consideration of, well, I don't want to spend the money or I could do it. No doubt you can save money and no doubt you can do it, but it's, there's always a, uh, a trade in, in something, whether it is in, in quality or whether it is in um, uh, um, trying to, to attend to something for which you don't necessarily have the expertise, though you can always uh, build it, but you may not have the time yet or you may not have uh, the desire as well is the other thing to consider. Yeah, there's there's like a mental energy spend as well as like a t an actual time one, right? Like we yeah. In one sentence, that is exactly amount. what I meant to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's what I do. <laughs> I, I'm used to lecturing for three hours straight, and uh, if you look at my rate professors, out. draw it out. It, it is. It is like. <laughs> He said in three hours, he could have said uh, something in 30 minutes, much more concise. Well, and I think like another thing to think of, and I wouldn't have ever considered this until I went back to school. So when I was doing the program, it was a an MBA. And then at the same time, I did my MA in dance. So it was like a combined degree. It cut oh a year-ish off. Um, okay. But it, like, it was like very two separate worlds. I was walking into like, MBA students who are going to go and work at like Deloitte or in like Bay Street, like financial district of Toronto, and then going over to like my class of six <laughs> and like we're talking about like researching dance methodologies and stuff. And so 
what I realized is I had one year where I was half a semester or one semester was business courses and one semester was dance courses. Um, and the mental energy it took me to like physically switch my brain from going from like the arts building to the business building was a more draining semester even though it was less classes and and i didn't i wouldn't have ever picked up on that until having been in there but you just it's such a different area of your focus that has to work on both things yeah that you're like you're just spending so much energy on having to do both but there's this expectation that artists do do both because it's not both that you're doing, it's three things, right? Because you're doing yeah. the admin side, you're doing the creative side, and you're doing the switching. The switching is a part mm, of that work yeah. too, right? And yeah. and that is why like people never take into account the fact, A, like what Alan was saying, that our brains have to breathe, right? So if especially if you're doing creative work, like the more stuff you're filling your brain with and the more output you're trying to get out, the less your brain can breathe and like do that really great creative work, right? It's like, it's like the loaf of bread that has to rise, right? Like you yeah. need to give it that space to do that. And if you're just filling it with all these tiny tasks that you have to constantly do, A, those tiny tasks, marketing, okay, <laughs> that don't get done well, right? Like they're always on the side yeah. of the desk. They don't get done well because you don't have that capacity, but also the tasks that you're wanting to be actually spending and devoting your time to and your attention to, those don't get well done well either because you're constantly yeah. switching yeah. to no. that. Yeah. And like, you're constantly filling your plate, like something has to fall oh. off. And like, what, like, what are you going to pick? You know, like, yeah, is it going to be yeah. your training? Is it going to be like, the quality of a rehearsal? Is it going to be marketing? Is it going to be planning? It's for... usually marketing. marketing. It's always marketing. It's <laughs> always marketing. And I would say, <laughs> like short term, it's always marketing. Long term, it's always strategic planning. Yeah, yes. I was just gonna say that yes. too. Like, yeah. What are you yeah. like? What are you doing yeah. in five years? Like, I don't yeah. know. Like, <laughs> yeah, hull and ass. Like, that's basically what we would yeah. say. I think, like, you know, nothing makes me happier when I can take that moment to alleviate the stress from the artists mm -hmm. and let them let go. Um, you know, and and I was part of this. Um, sort of ad hoc committee when I was living in Vancouver and we called it, it was like a facilitators, arts facilitators, managers meeting. And the, the tagline we put in the meeting was making art or fixing toilets. And it was awesome. <laughs> um, and we all just gathered and like complained about like keys and, and renos and whatever else you were doing, et cetera, et cetera. But we would come together on, equal ground. And I think that that was so useful for us. I think, you know, and Tom always makes fun of me for ditching uh, marketing all the time because, you know, we work for a small theater company and marketing is like a pain in the ass. And I would, I actually, I'm busy like working out fucking equity contracts and ADC contracts and running the venue and making sure everybody's safe and making sure that I'm available for everybody's ear. And marketing is just honestly it's like the last on yeah. my plate so we're fortunate to be in a place where now we've been able to sort of um hire these people to like do work for us because 
Otherwise, we're never going to grow, right? Like I do see that and our strat plan as well. Every single company I know is doing a strat plan right now because one, your strat plan has been thrown out the fucking window because of COVID. Yeah. And two, now you got time and we're all doing strat plans. We're all doing EDID strat plans. We're all doing EDID training. It's all happening and it's beautiful and it's a great as much as COVID sucks and as much as we all hate this thing, it is that moment to pause and to reset and to plan again and plan in an equitable, we will do an ethically responsible reopening as best as we can. And I think that this is the time and it's super appreciative that y'all are busy because you should be busy Yeah, (laughs) because people need you. Well, thank you. Well, and I have to say it's interesting because you bring up the, uh, you know, COVID has given us a time of pause. COVID also ha- happened coincidentally with alongside um, much more visible uh, social justice movements, for example, yes, Black Lives Matter. Yes. And um, when we're looking at Indigenous rights issues and when we're looking at uh, many, many other um, issues. And so I, I'm a South Asian male and... I sit on two boards, a local board and a national board, uh, the local one WM uh, Dance Projects and the national one uh, Dancer Transition Resource Center. And then I also work at the university, two universities. And uh, it's it has been taken over by two primary conversations. It is strategic planning. Actually, I would say three. It is administrative structure and restructuring. Mm-hmm. It is strategic planning. And then it is EDID uh, conversations. So uh, that being equity, diversity, inclusivity, and decolonization uh, mm-hmm. works. So it's it's uh, really interesting see, seeing <clears throat> all of this come to the forefront in, in a way, finally. Uh, but also it is uh, overwhelming some organizations, I will say, yeah. um, to have to focus on EDID work. <laughs> to have to focus on strategic planning and to also have to focus on how do we operate during uh, COVID. So, and, and more than just putting things online, how do we actually present what our strategic mission is uh, and what our values are through uh, online modes Mm -hmm. or, or through alternate modes, I should say, not just strictly online, but alternate modes. So um, this past year has presented a lot of uh, things for individuals and what I would say in, in, in uh, agreement with what Alyssa had said, how we actually haven't seen a downturn in our business is because people are noticing the the time it takes away from some core things that they need to be doing, such as things like strategic planning and things like uh, EDID work, which uh, you know people are are as they should be outsourcing to folks who specialize in that kind of work. Is the value in looking at uh, who the professionals are and who has the expertise to support you and what you need to do to sustain yourself as an organization, grow as an organization, and also uh, in some way, as I would say, to uh, meet the standards of a socially just uh, society. Yeah, well said. I think, um, I mean, what are what are your thoughts on that? Like this pause that brought, you know, a pa- it took a pandemic for us to pay attention and to, and to, you know, hopefully, you know, rip down a hierarchy when, when, where needed or, or, or where necessary. I think I'm curious about both of your thoughts about this. It's to me, it's, it's sad that it takes a horrific event like George Floyd murders, um, Asian hate, uh, a pandemic, all these things that make us stop and do a strategic plan. (laughs) 
and do EDID training. So one thing I'll say immediately to that is sometimes it takes tragedy for us to take uh, things into consideration, especially on the level that um, uh, whether local, provincial, national, international, global society will take into consideration. You look at uh, the case of Matthew Shepard, for example, mm -hmm. uh, when we're thinking about uh, gay rights and really yeah. uh, especially bringing that to the forefront. It, it, we often are, uh, we're not, this is my, this is my personal perspective, uh, and I present it as such, is that we are a very reactive society rather than proactive. It, it often takes a tragedy for us to listen to something and want to enact change to um, to really uh, uh, um, make amends with, with the grievances of peoples uh, upon whom we've had privileges or uh, <clears throat> in which, uh, with which we exist in a hierarchical structure. In, in my courses, for example, and I've been teaching uh, only since 2017, so only, only for four years, <clears throat> and when we get to the topic of things you didn't learn in art school, there are the business sides which we're going to talk about. Uh, but when I think about the academic side, one of the things that I teach uh, first class is that we need to look at dance forms with, with the perspective of parity. So if you think of the term disparity, which means uh, uh, difference and brings to notion notions of hierarchy, I want to look at dance cultures, dances and dance cultures in, in parity. So looking at things not in a hierarchy, where you have one above the other, but in a heterarchy, where everyone is parallel to each other, so that we can approach each dance and each dance culture uh, from their own perspective. You know, you, you might call it cultural relativism in the, in the academic world, but really trying to not say, you know, I remember being at Global Fest. Uh, for those of you who are listening from outside of Calgary, Global Fest is a, uh, an annual event that celebrates uh, cultures from around the world. Uh, it usually happens, I think, at Elliston Park, but you can correct me if you know which park it actually happens at. I think it's and, that park too. <laughs> and there's usually a stage and every night there is a, a culture culture. Uh, and just so you know, all y'all white people are ethnic and cultural too. If you want information on that, you can uh, talk to me about it. Yeah. Uh, we've been, we, we've, we've established this since at least uh, uh, the seventies uh, in the dance field, at least. Uh, um, so, so the one thing I should uh, want to bring up is that at uh, Global Fest, there's often a presentation that happens on the stage and uh, different cultures will present uh, different uh, dance styles. And we've become so used to evaluating and judging dance forms based on their virtuosity, based on how skillful it is to do dance. When we think about dance and I ask my classes, you know, how would you define dance? It, it's been changing, actually. I'm really, really happy how people are starting to change their definition of dance. But the onset, it, onset is usually based on one's skill. And uh, among like things like artistry and, and beauty and emotion and storytelling. But skill was a was a thing that was uh, uh, recognized beside it. And I remember being at Global Fest 10 years ago, um, actually almost to the date, and someone sitting next to me and watching a, a folk dance on stage. And I can't remember which culture was presenting, unfortunately. Uh, but they were saying, well, I could do that. <laughs> and uh, it's a very telling comment because it tells you that there is a hierarchy in understanding dance, that there is a disparity between uh, forms that require a lot of virtuosity and ones that don't, without recognizing the fact that some styles focus on virtuosity, other styles don't. Other styles mm -hmm. may focus on a different kind of virtuosity or may focus on so, uh, socialization, may focus just on uh, the essence of being present, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we should not uh, evaluate things based on, oh, it's not as tough as ballet. It's not as tough as this thing. 
Um, and so when, and so the, the parallel I draw in regards to EDID work, for example, is that um, how often do we view culture uh, and, and race and hierarchies? We often, we often do. And uh, in one sense, uh, the EDID work that I do and the, with the organizations that I do is to remove this disparity and move towards parity that we're not being comparative uh, uh, between cultures. And I know that we want to because we, we try to say, well, objectively, this is better in this and this is better in that. Um, but we have to be cognizant that there are different worldviews as much as they may contradict our worldviews, that there are... Um, uh, that's one of the things to work on and approach in EDID work is um, uh, approaching cultures from a cultural relative perspective and to not try and uh, look at a, at a culture in correlation to this arbitrary hierarchy we've more or less developed uh, throughout, uh, throughout history. And so uh, the EDID work that I do is very specifically within the dance realm. So I can only ever speak from that perspective, not from business, not from uh, music or or other um, uh, loosely or not loosely related topics. But that's how I try to approach EDID work is not from this perspective of of hierarchy. So what if it is uh, a religious dance? So what mm. if it is not skillful? So what if um, uh, there's this or that to try and approach it from understanding it first first from its uh, uh, own essence and its own perspective not right. to evaluate it against hierarchy. So EDID work, I think, in, in part, amongst many other things, looking at history and decolonization, et cetera, does also have to be grounded in this uh, essence of, are we looking at things from a hierarchy or are we looking at things from a heterarchy, from things that are on a parallel plane? Hmm. And that is my uh, rant and speech. I'm sorry, I speak I a it. lot. I speak <laughs> for three hours at a time, often at this speed without Don't a pause. Apologize. Uh, rants are the best. That's what we do. <laughs> That's all we do. I also yeah. want to just thank you real quick about introducing me to the term ethnochoreology. It, it is a very fancy term. And hilariously, the president of the university had a hard time saying it both when he was announcing the program when I uh, was first starting at that university in the University of Limerick and when I was uh, graduating. <laughs> F no, and it's funny because it, it does not. It's technically phonetic. Yeah, it. I didn't. Ha did I stutter? Like was I already right there? Not. <laughs> not, but, uh, for those of you uh, listening, it's a very, it's a very bougie term for talking about. I love the, it. Uh, inter. It, it is an interdisciplinary study of dance. So you can look at dance socially, uh, politically, religiously, uh, linguistically. You can look at it um, anthropologically, as we often do. And it's just looking at dance through um, various lenses. And the ethno part, people often think, oh, you're looking at non-Western things. No, <laughs> I will reiterate, all y'all white people are ethnic. Um, uh, Joanne Keely Namoku wrote an article called An Anthropologist Looks at Ballet as a Form of Ethnic Dance. Y'all should read it uh, because it really breaks down how uh, ballet is an ethnic dance. Yeah. Also, we'll a very sexual dance. In case you didn't think about it, ballet has a very erotic history. Oh, this is. Oh, we'll bring you back on. You'll tell us all about oh, the erotic oh my history. God, the best part. So, you guys are like y'all are the first people we've had on the show that we don't know in advance. That's true. And now I'm like, mm, now we're best friends. Yeah. Yeah. FYI, I mean, <laughs> could have gone one of two ways. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
there's not sorry a- i took up a lot of uh breath there so i do i do apologize i don't know uh if uh you want to add anything Alyssa? i guess maybe just a comment on like the timing of it um it's on the one hand it's unfortunate that it's taken this long and that's like frustrating um at the very least along with you know you question what we maybe missed out on as a society because of this structure. At the same time, assuming that it's not a performative form of activism, I'm very hopeful of what the world and like specifically the art world will be for my kids. Um, And like, I, I guess that's kind of like where I sit with it is more on like the parent side of being like, you know, my, my kids aren't going to know a life where like Black Lives Matter didn't happen, you know, like, mm. which is like a crazy concept because they're two and a half in a year. So like they're like toddlers and babies. But uh, like it's I'm I'm hopeful um, and I'm hopeful that this pause will not die out and the the momentum behind it won't die out as soon as things mm. get like you know, back to normal, whatever that is, whatever normal is going to look like. But I think, uh, and I do see the like younger generations, which based on my emojis, I am not a part of, uh, the, the like call to action to the like people in authorities to make this happen and to be accountable for this, which is, so refreshing to see um that i like i guess it's it's tragedy that has bred hope but i'm i i i guess that's where i'm sitting right now with it we'll see what happens in like 10 years and like that's i guess what we just gotta like keep our focus on is that this doesn't go away you know like and and it's not like it's not a checkbox either this isn't like a, oh, we did this done and it's over with. Like it's a, it's a constant and it's going to be, uh, like I, I think it's going to be something that will be impactful for generations. Like it's not just going to be wiped out or whatever in my lifetime. And like, unfortunately, um, I would really hope for that to be like that not to be the case. Um, but I think there's constantly that and constantly the work behind it and not just in an arts practice but in like a day-to-day situation kind of life practice uh one thing to add on top of that is um that uh you know i i interact with all walks of people both uh as students because i teach at mount royal university and university of calgary um, but also my day-to-day life of people who are in various stages of agreeing or disagreeing with uh, the social movements that are happening uh, mm. right now. The one thing I will say is that, especially as an instructor, I have an incredible amount of patience that that I feel like I understand that I need with particular uh, students to be able to come to an understanding about things. Uh, one one thing that you may not know about me, obviously, because you don't know me, uh, is I used <laughs> to have a huge temper problem as a young person. Uh, working in the arts, actually, and then dance really tempered me and gave me this kind of unlimited patience that I have. And I know that a lot of our social justice work actually has quite a bit of urgency behind it. For example, uh, in regards to police brutality, that that has a huge amount of urgency behind it to um, to to uh, try and ensure that that is um, brought down as quickly as possible. Just just to be quite frank. 
but in other stages of thought as opposed to action, uh, I do have patience for people and students and um, colleagues and whatnot who are not yet at a stage of acceptance of understanding things like privilege and uh, whatnot. Like when I talk about this parody, yes, I brought up that virtuosity is at, at the top of the hierarchy, but so is white virtuosity. There is uh, virtuosity in a lot of forms that are that come from the continent of Africa, for example, but it is not acknowledged as uh, virtuosity. It's often called, quote unquote, messy or too free form. It doesn't have the structure of uh, and virtuosity of Western concert dance forms. The, the other thing I would say, especially since I, I should note that within my work within Pivot, uh, Alyssa and I do have crossover, but we do work also in, like we're a bit of a Venn diagram. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, she, uh, Alyssa works and you can uh, speak more to it, works on the grant and, uh, marketing and, um, uh, uh, administrative side of things. And I work on the administrative side of things, but also mostly within, uh, venues cause that's my, uh, expertise. So working with ven uh, venues to build operational design, um, you know, how, how's it going to feel for patrons who enter and interact with the space? How's it going to work for artists, uh, et cetera. One thing that we have to understand, and, and if there are any architects and interior designers or arts organizations <laughs> looking to build a venue or open a venue, one thing I would ask you is, to what extent is your vision for the space based on Western concert practices? Hmm. And how, in what way does opening or working on a venue uh, and the decolonization process uh, factor into that? So, you know, uh, a concert hall, beautiful concert hall, Mount Royal University, Bella Concert Hall very much designed for Western concert um, practices and, and values. Very much so because also there's a conservatory there, of course. And, you know, it's a, it's a revenue generating space. So it, it's going to cater to uh, uh, things that can operate within the space. Um, but when we think about um, indigenization, for example, how does indigenization and the construction of space work? How does... and and, and just to provide a, a point, not all Western concert dance forms or Western dance forms, I should say, actually, uh, are on stages. You know, when we look at Irish dance, it's really in its modern form, especially post-1994 river dance uh, Eurovision, <laughs> that uh, Irish dance is really known as a stage uh, dance form. But when we look at um, the past and how it was danced at the crossroads, outdoors, at the intersection of roads, you know, uh, uh, that as its uh, uh, primary form of presentation. Um, so when we're looking at space, constructing space, and even looking at performance and how we're presenting uh, work, how does a venue actually figure into that? Not just in terms of the, the work that Alyssa and I do with Pivot in terms of um, production, uh, production coordinator or in terms of uh, consulting with architects and interior designers on, on the, the space itself, uh, well, actually, sorry, sorry, I mean it in both those senses, you know, how you operate within an existing, an existing space and how you uh, uh, move forward to develop a new space. How are you actually including EDID values within that uh, as well? Something that I would take into consideration if you're an architect, interior designer, or arts organization who's looking for... Oh, my God. <laughs> I have 55 right. jobs for you now, too. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with West Village Theater and Dancer Studio West, which is which used to be Dancer yeah. Studio West. That is where I work. And I'm starting to embark on a 10-year plan to, you know, fix it. <laughs> well, it's so, interesting. I, I will provide one little historical tidbit about DSW, uh, DSW, and I'm not going to name names, uh, uh, just because I don't want this to be taken pejoratively. 
But at one point in DSW's history, uh, there was a, an annual festival that included uh, contemporary practices. And it wasn't just contemporary dance, in the, in the, um, which is hard to define for those of you who are listening, uh, but contemporary practices. So you might have contemporary hip hop, contemporary tap, contemporary flamenco. So it, the intersection and, and the blend of contemporary practices and uh, existing dance forms. At a certain point, it shifted to being a festival focusing and centering really just on contemporary dance works. And I would actually think of that as a shift away from this EDID focus. Hmm. Because when we're thinking about equity, diversity, and inclusivity, I understand uh, the argument for why it was shifted towards a contemporary dance uh, festival as opposed to being a, a festival uh, presenting contemporary works within the dance field is how I would uh, uh, describe that. And it's because it does, uh, contemporary dance uh, is often influenced by Western concert dance values, though that is different in the uh, practices of many people around the world, so I don't want to generalize. However, within Calgary, very much centered within Western concert dance values. And so EDID work, I think, would be uh, if DSW did exist in its current iteration, which it is, it no longer does, so, so DSW is as, as a different entity now than, than the, the history I'm talking about right now, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is that to bring back the EDID work would perhaps be bringing back that focus on supporting and uh, helping fund uh, the work of artists who work in a contemporary sense, but in uh, forms that are alternate to uh, Western concert dance styles. So what, uh, and just to provide a, a, an interesting uh, segue to a friend who is doing this, uh, I have a friend, uh, Dr. Ross Mikey C, who I did my master's with in Ireland, who now has his doctorate, of course. And he has pioneered and developed this form called Ethio Modern Dance. So uh, modern dance that is informed by Ethiopian uh, dance practices. Um, so things like Eskista and Garage and uh, other forms from, from the country of Ethiopia. And so, so that's something that uh, I've worked, uh, I participated in an early uh, iteration of Ethio modern work. So in thinking about EDID practices and, and notions of uh, space and programming as well, I guess that's kind of what I segued to here is like, what does programming look like from an EDID lens as well? Um, and what kind of support uh, and funding that you're providing? All right, that was part one of our conversation with Alan and Melissa. Thanks so much for joining us. Tune in next week for part two of our chat, where they're going to talk to us about the things that art schools don't teach you and share their budgeting tips for arts organizations. If you'd like to have more information about Pivot, visit itspivot.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and leave us a review. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you again. Bye.